As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to Killer Queens, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Torella. And I'm your better, prettier, younger host, Tori. We're sisters who are obsessed with true crime and love gal palin with you about cases. You can expect the occasional curse word, lots of friends quotes, and all the 90s nostalgia. To get in on the conversation, check us out at KillerQueensPodcast.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at Killer Queens Podcast. And we're on YouTube at Killer Queens, a true crime podcast. Okay, y'all, grab your Capri Suns or your Surge, and let's talk about some true crime. All right, you guys. Guess who's back? Back again. Charlie Manson's back. Oh. Oh. Him, not us. Okay. Well, both. I mean, technically, we're both back, but... True. We're getting ready to close the chapter on this stupid idiot, so... yeah. Um, let's do, uh, maybe let's do our trigger warnings again. I think that's a great idea. Just as a reminder, because this is part two of our two-part series on Charlie Manson. So we've got, um, again, I say the trigger warnings are yes and amen. Yep. They're basically everything. Plentiful. (laughs) Plentiful, yes. So murder, brutality, torture, murder of a pregnant woman, sexual assault of adults and children, drug use, rampant racism. And cults, there may be others, but again, just anything you could be triggered by probably is going to be in this episode. Yes. And uh, we want to thank Madison again for writing up these episodes. She did the whole series. And thanks again to Erin Marie, Carly Bodick, Jesse Ariel, Iris Lowe, Helen Milo, and Sarah Hofford for requesting it. Yay, we love everybody. Yay, yay, yay. So why don't we just go ahead and get into it? I think we should. Okay. So where we last left off, right? Charlie and the family, they have... Well, Charlie has just listened to the Beatles' White Album. and Which he, was written explicitly for him. Yes, it was titled... I think the actual title is To Charlie, Love the Beatles, XOXO, The White Album. Yep. That's and it. he was personally taken by the song Helter Skelter. Mm-hmm which he thought was 100% written for him because of this um, race war that he is going to incite by starting murders. Now, I don't think that the Beatles, I don't think that they had that in mind. And we may never know, but probably not. Yeah. Yeah, I think. Yeah. I don't know. Um, But anyway, it's not the Beatles' fault. It's Charlie's fault. And we're just going to get right into it. So around 8 a.m. on Saturday, April, Mm-hmm. My goodness. August 9th. That's how some people pronounce it. Okay. I can do whatever I want to, okay? August or if whatever, if you pronounce it August, whatever. On Saturday, August 9th, 1969, Winifred Chapman headed from the bus stop to her job as a housekeeper at 10,050 Cielo Drive. And as she approached the gate to the resident, she saw that a wire had been cut near the gate mechanism, but the button still worked to open the gate. She saw a vehicle parked at an odd angle in the driveway, but it wasn't abnormal for residents to have overnight visitors. So nothing really crazy there, according to her at that point. So she goes through the service entrance at the back of the house. And when she walked inside, she picked up the house phone, but it was dead. 
She goes through the house looking for someone to tell that the phone wasn't working. And as she walked through the dining room to the living room, there were two large steam trunks on the floor. And she was like, um, so this wasn't here when I left yesterday afternoon. That's kind of weird. So there were also two towels laying in the entryway and on the trunks, the towels and the nearby floor, Winifred saw blood. Part of the living room was blocked by a couch that had been moved, so she couldn't see the entire room, but what she could see was covered in blood. The front door was open, and there were pools of blood on the porch, and as she looked further across, or out across the lawn, she saw a body. And Winifred was like, uh, uh-uh. Yeah. Not today. Not doing this. Nope. nope. So she turned around. She ran out of the home, and she went to a neighbor's home for help. At 9.14 a.m., the official police report stated that units were notified that there was a possible homicide at 10,050 Cielo Drive. When a patrol officer arrived, he wasn't able to get much information from Winifred because she was super upset and in shock, I'm sure. Yeah. The neighbor was able to advise that the house belonged to Rudy Altabelli, a talent manager who was currently in Europe, and he left a man, William Gerritsen, as a caretaker. Gerritsen was living in the guest house in the back of the property, and Alto Belli, in his absence, had rented the house to Roman Polanski, who is or was a movie director, and his wife, Sharon Tate, who was an actress. The couple had been in Europe since March, but Sharon decided to go back to Cielo Drive about a month earlier. While they were gone, Abigail Folger and Wojtek Frykowski, who were two friends of the Polanskis, had moved in. The pair was staying with Tate until her husband returned. The patrol officer made his way onto the property and he looked inside the vehicle that was oddly parked in the driveway and he found a body inside. This body was a young male and it was covered in blood. The ignition was off and another officer arrived on scene and they checked the other vehicles, but they didn't find anything. A third officer arrived and all three officers noticed two bodies on the lawn and they said, guys, they said, quote, from a distance... They looked like mannequins that had been dipped in red paint. What do we know about things that look like mannequins? It's never a mannequin. It's never a mannequin. And certainly, who dips them in red paint? Right. I mean, never is going... Well, I don't want to say never because somebody's going to be like, well, I saw. But it rarely happens. Dipped in red paint. (laughs) Exactly. One body was about 20 feet from the front door, and it was a male with his head and face that had obviously suffered severe blunt trauma. He had multiple puncture wounds, dozens on his torso and extremities. The next body was a female, about 25 feet further past the male. She was wearing a white nightgown that nobody could tell was white because it was so red from all the blood. There were several what appeared to be stab wounds on her body. The officers were aware of how quiet it was, how quiet it was, which gave them the creeps. Would me too. Mm-hmm. Especially, I mean, if you just found what you found, and then you're like, listen. Yeah. That's scary. Yeah, it's creepy. They were worried that the assailants might still be inside the residence, and a screen had been removed from the front window that was leaning against the house with a slit in the bottom of it. There was an open window on the side of the house leading to what appeared to be an empty, freshly painted room. The front door had a word written on it, and that looked like it was written in blood, and the word was pig. Inside the living room, there was blood absolutely everywhere. One of the officers noted two small pieces of wood on the floor that appeared to be from a broken gun grip. On the side of the couch, they found a young blonde woman wearing a flowered bra and matching underwear, and she was very obviously pregnant. A white nylon rope was wrapped around her neck twice. One end of the rope was thrown over a wooden rafter in the ceiling, and the other side of the rope was extended across the floor and wrapped around the neck of another body who was a young male. Mm. There appeared to be a bloody towel covering his face, and he was soaked in blood. None of the officers checked any of the bodies for a pulse or signs of life. They knew that there was no way that anyone could have survived their injuries. The rest of the house had blood spots throughout and evidence that the victims had been getting ready for bed when they were interrupted by the killers. As they went out into the backyard, they saw the guest house and heard a dog barking. And they also heard a man's voice saying, shh, be quiet. So they forced entry and found 19-year-old William Gerritsen, the house's caretaker. Gerritsen didn't seem to know what happened and he denied having heard anything crazy the night before. He said that he was up all night listening to records and writing letters. 
he was led past the bodies in his front yard or in the front yard. And he misidentified the female as housekeeper Winifred Chapman, the housekeeper that had alerted the police that this had happened, but he didn't realize it wasn't her because there was so much blood on the victim. So Chapman, who knew, you know, police were like, no, she's alive and well, and also is a black woman. They knew that that was not the case, but, um, he identified the male body as the young Polanski, which was not Roman Polanski. He was in Europe. So they just assumed that Gerritsen didn't know who the man was. Gerritsen was immediately read his rights and he was arrested for murder because he's the only one that survived this attack. They were like, you mean to tell me you didn't hear anything? Arrested. Right. I don't need anything else. He must have done it. Yeah. Between 10 and 11 a.m., a telephone company worker arrived on scene, climbed the telephone pole outside the home, and found that four wires had been cut. He told police that the person who cut them would have had to climb the pole to do so. A forensic chemist was called to the scene to collect blood samples. This would prove extremely difficult due to how much blood was in the home and the fact that there were five victims. And I mean, it, I mean, it was just an absolutely gruesome scene. There was just blood everywhere. Certain spots were overlooked, and the chemist intentionally did not take samples from certain areas near the bodies, assuming that they belonged to the victim they were nearest to. You know what they say about assuming. Yeah. Makes out of ass. It makes it, oh. <laughs> it makes out of ass. You and me. <laughs> Ew, what? Ew, I don't want to eat made out of ass. made out of asses. Yeah. <laughs> well, now I've made an ass out of me. <laughs> yes. You're exactly... Something that's made out of ass. Exactly. Well, that was my bad then, wasn't it? Ruined that one. <laughs> okay. But like, okay, so if people have been that brutally murdered, are we not considering at all that the assailants could have left some of their blood? I mean, and this was very early, but it's like, oh, well, there's a puddle of blood over by that one, so that has to belong to that one, so I uh, don't need to take that. Right. It's probably their own blood. Well, that's not exactly what the job entails, is it? Just assuming and just being like, eh, we don't have to really... Yeah, because again, we know that assuming makes, makes, is made right out of asses. (laughs) So you don't want to assume. Yes, yes. It's just ridiculous. I know, come on. There were several pools of blood on the porch of which he only took samples from one. Of course he did. And he later testified, he was like, okay, listen, oh, hold on though. You don't know why I did that, okay? So hang on and let me tell you why I did that. Because I thought they were probably just all the same. <laughs> What's I supposed to do? I know. And he's like, look, I had a reservation at Chili's. Mm-hmm. I had to make it It was damn near noon. What are you going to like? Yeah. Yeah, I don't want to hit the rush. Come on. I know. Yeah. And look, multiple puddles of blood in one place. Probably all belong to the same person. I hope that guy got at the very least a stern talking to and at the very most, um, you know, got a fire ring. I don't know. It's like, that's yeah. not, you're, you're missing it. That's you're not, not doing how any of this works. No. Yeah. Hey, y'all. Did you know that we release an update all about us and what we're up to each week on our Patreon? It's called T to the Fourth Power Y, which is some time to talk to you, a nod to Not Another Teen Movie. Mm -hmm. And it's where we just gal pal with you about life, what we're watching, our love for Cracker Barrel Italian dressing. I mean, honestly, the sky's the limit. You never know what you're going to get, really. Mm -hmm. If you want to catch an episode without being a patron, you are in luck. Just head over to killerqueens.link slash tt. T-T-Y, okay, time to talk to you, four T's and a Y, and you'll get to hear a full episode for free. And you can get these episodes every single week along with every single regular release episode ad-free for as little as $3 a month. That's less than half the price of the coffee I get at Starbucks, so. I know, that's crazy. I know, what a deal. Mm-hmm. And for $10 a month, you get all that plus our other two Patreon-exclusive shows, Murder Mixtapes, which is a full bonus case each week. Recent cases are Tara Grinstead, Hannah Cornelius, and New York Body Snatchers, just to name a few. 
And you also get our other Patreon-exclusive show, Doc Jams, which is where we cover true crime documentaries episode by episode. We've done Don't Fuck With Cats. We've done Crime Scene on Netflix. They have Cecil Hotel and Times Square Killer. We've done The Jinx. We've done so many more. So be sure to head to killerqueens.link slash T-T-T-T-Y. To get your free episode and hundreds more episodes to download right now and binge when you become a member of our Patreon community. Around this time, William Tennant, who was a close friend of the Polanskis and Roman's business manager, arrived on scene. He was escorted onto the scene by police. He did not recognize the young man in the vehicle, but identified the man on the lawn as Votek Frykowski and the woman as Abigail Folger. The best part of waking up is Folgers in your cup, Folger. Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, my God. The pregnant woman in the living room was Sharon Tate, and the male was likely tenant-believed Jay Sebring. He wasn't positive about Sebring, and it's awful. It's due to how badly his face was battered. You could not recognize him. It's awful. It's awful. The fifth victim who was in the vehicle was still unidentified. He didn't have any ID on him, and no one close to the victims had any idea who this young man was. While questioning Gerritsen about his whereabouts and what he was doing the previous night, he said that he'd had a visitor around 11.45 p.m., and this was 18-year-old Stephen Parent. He said that a few weeks ago, he'd hitched a ride with Parent, and that when Parent dropped him off, he told him to stop by anytime if he wanted to hang out. Gerritsen didn't have much contact with the residents in the main house and seemed excited to have company when Parent dropped by on the night of August 8th. Parent showed Gerritsen a clock radio that he'd fixed up and asked Gerritsen if he wanted to buy it. Gerritsen said, thank you, but no, and Parent left shortly after. And he said, I said good day. (laughs) That doesn't sound like much of a hangout sesh, honestly, you know? Yeah, that's really like, hey, man, I I would like to make some money. Will you buy something from me? And he's like, meh, 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 no. And he's like, all right, bye. (laughs) You want to come out to my car and see my ways? Like, that's, (laughs) yeah, I don't know. He's like, yeah, we're best friends, so we hung out (laughs) a lot. LAPD was able to confirm the identity of the deceased male in the vehicle as Stephen Parent. Mm. Talk about fucking wrong place, wrong time. I mean, all of them, honestly, because of what we know now. But like, but he was just trying to come over with this clock radio. He was trying to sell a clock radio. My God, that's so sad. And he was so young. He was so young. Yeah. And El Monte, El Monte, El Monte. One of the three has to be right. Police officer went to the home of parent where he lived with his mother and father. He handed his father a card with a phone number on it and told him to call it. And he gave him no other information. And then he just leaves. So Stephen's father calls the number reaching the county coroner's office. What a fucking do you remember? Yeah, this happened with uh, Andrew Bagby. Yep. His parents got a phone call or whatever. And they were like, called this number back, and then they kept calling the number, and it was the fucking coroner's office, but the coroner's office was closed for the fucking weekend or something, and so they had to spend, like, days trying to get a hold. Oh, my gosh. Why couldn't that police officer just be, like, just say something to warn him? Yeah, I need to tell you that, like, yeah, I cannot. They told him that they believed that an unidentified body they had belonged to their son, the family's priest made his way to the coroner's office and made the identification. Ugh. Sharon Marie Tate Polanski, and she's mostly had been known as Sharon Tate, was 26 years old at the time of her death. She loved the spotlight from a very young age, winning beauty pageants and hitchhiking into LA to wander around the film studios. She was a beautiful young blonde and had her heart set on becoming a star. She appeared in a few commercials and a TV series before a producer took her under his wing. She began singing, dancing, and acting lessons while playing small parts in movies and television shows. In 1963, she met internationally... Mm-hmm. That's not that word. No. <laughs> internationally acclaimed celebrity hairstylist Jay Sebring. The two quickly fell for each other and became inseparable. In the summer of 1966, while filming a movie in France, Sharon met famous movie director Roman Polanski. He was known as a, quote, playboy director. He, those who knew him described him as arrogant, but with significant talent. That was only matched by his enormous ego. What a way oh. to be known. 
I know. Like, <laughs> I would love to meet that guy. Right. <laughs> Sharon and Polanski first met at a party, neither leaving a significant impression on each other. Her agent introduced them, wanting Sharon to be cast in a role in Polanski's upcoming horror movie spoof. He was writing, directing, and starring in his own film. Of course he Sounds was. about right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. He was like, uh, I've got a great actor playing the, the main role, if I say so myself. <laughs> yes. <laughs> It's like when Dennis makes the prototype and he's like, this model is terrible for this job. The only person that can do this correctly, me. Exactly. <laughs> oh my Ridiculous. God. So I forgot about that. Polanski agreed that Sharon would be a good fit. And before the filming was over, the two transitioned from being on-screen lovers to having an off-screen love. She ended her relationship with Sebring, who took it very hard, but ultimately settled as being a family friend, likely hoping that the relationship would fizzle. And he'd still be around. But many believed that Sebring was still in love with Sharon and they thought that he was in love with her up until the murder. I mean, you've got to have... You're devastated that she broke up with you and then you become like the... Oh, what was that movie? Was it uh, License to Wed? Where her like ex-boyfriend was still really good friends with the family and he was there all the time and he was like at the cake tasting and the food ta- and like all the stuff in his fam- her family still loved him. Maybe. That happened in Meet the Parents for sure. Oh, did it? Well, Owen Wilson was best friends with little Pam and... Oh, yeah, remember yeah, Remember yeah. he... Yeah. I believe it was Eric Olson that played <gasps> uh, Mandy Moore's ex in okay. that movie. Okay. And he like, you know the um John Krasinski or whatever, I forget his name in the movie, but he's like, dude, he's still in love with you. And she's like, no, he's not. We're just friends. Like, <laughs> right. And he's like, no, I'm pretty sure he's still in love with you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I could be making all this up. I don't. I'm it sounds like a great movie. I love the movie. Yeah. Don't Even remember anything about it. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. Don't remember anything about it. <laughs> Maybe if that's not how the movie goes, I will create the movie and play all of the roles myself. As you should. Yeah. Because like Tilda really Swinton and the... get in there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Tilda Swinton plays literally every part. Impeccably, too. Yes. Sharon continued to have minor parts in films, with her biggest role being in 1967 in Valley of the Dolls. And she unfortunately wasn't able to hit star status, but that dream ultimately fell to the wayside when she married Polanski in 1968 and found herself pregnant. Her friends and family said that her unborn child was her dream now, and she loved being a wife. Sharon was found to have multiple stab wounds to the chest and back, which penetrated her lungs, heart, and liver. She was stabbed a total of 16 times. Five of these wounds were found to be fatal. Her cause of death was exsanguination. That's awful. I know. Isn't that bleeding out? Yeah. Okay. Sharon was eight months pregnant and her unborn son had been fully formed. And like she, she just begged, like you, you can come back and kill me later. Let me give birth to this child. I know. So sad. And they did not give a an absolute care in the world Mm-mm. about her or her unborn child. It's terrible. J. Sebring, born Thomas J. Cummer, arrived in Hollywood after four years in the Navy as a Navy barber. He believed I would change my name too. Yeah, spelled with a K. Oof. Remember those uh, grocery stores or convenience oh, stores? Oh, the come and go. They, yeah, are they in the Midwest? The come and go? Yes. God. Oh. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> he believed that his appearance was incredibly important, and he reflected a lavish lifestyle by driving a sports car, wearing custom clothing, having a full-time butler, and throwing parties in his lavish mansion. He had a salon in L.A., which quickly became the regular spot for celebrities like Frank Mm-hmm. Like Frank Sinatra, Paul Newman, and Steve McQueen. Like Frank Sinatra? Frank. But so, like, did he just get super rich because he became the hairstylist of the stars? Like, what a freaking golden goose, man. You're, yeah. like, fresh out of the Navy. You just roll up in Hollywood, and you're like, I'm about to own this bitch. And then he did. And then he did. I yes. know. I have no idea. Many of his clients invested in his company, Sebring International, helping him expand into multiple franchise barbershops and marketing a line of men's toiletries. I mean, smart, smart shit. He is 
I mean, uh, a mogul, this guy was, unfortunately. He was considered to be responsible for the revolution of men's hair care and was requested worldwide by celebrities. Sebring was found to have been stabbed seven times and shot once. Three of the stab wounds, as well as the gunshot wound, were fatal. Sebring's cause of death was, as again, uh, same as Sharon Tate's exsanguination. He was around 35, or he was not around. He was absolutely 35 years old at the time of his murder. Yeah, he was exactly, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. And it's just, oh, it's so terrible. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%. Abigail Folger, known to friends and family as Gibby, was 25 years old when she was murdered. Abigail was the daughter of Peter Folger, the chairman for the Folger Company, uh, Folger Coffee Company. Abigail was the heiress to the coffee empire. Despite being well-known and very wealthy, Abigail enjoyed her work as a social worker. She first worked in the lower-income areas in New York City. It was while she was living in New York that she met Votek Frykowski who was new to America. The two of them drove to LA and rented a house in the Hollywood Hills. Abigail continued to volunteer as a social worker in many of the poor neighborhoods in LA. Despite how much she loved helping people, Abigail soon developed depression over the lack of impact she felt like she was making with the families. When uh, talking about the job, she said, quote, I can't, the suffering gets under your skin. That's so sad. It is incredibly sad. Because she's giving her time, like... You know, I mean, she's I get that she's she's rich, yeah, but she's yeah giving up her time. This is that important to her, and she just feels like she's not doing enough. Mm-hmm. It's sad. It is sad. Abigail and Frakowski had begun experimenting with drugs, but it soon turned turned to regular heavy use. The couple moved into the Cielo house with Sharon, but the drug use continued. 
Tennant, who ID'd the bodies, said that every time he came to Sharon's house, Abigail, quote, always seemed to be in a stupor from narcotics. Not oblivious to her problems, Abigail met with the psychiat- with a psychiatrist five days a week. Following her murder, the doctor said that he believed Abigail wanted to leave Frykowski, but she was still building up enough courage to be on her own. Abigail was found to have been stabbed 28 times with exsanguination being her cause of death as well. Mm. Votek Krakowski was 32 years old at the time of his murder. Frykowski had known Polanski from Poland, where Frykowski was known as a, as a, a playboy as well. Polanski later described him as, or described his friend as, quote, a man of little talent and immense charm. I don't feel like that's the nicest way to describe your friend who's just been murdered in no. your house, but okay. He is not at all talented, but he is incredibly smooth. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just kind of rude. That's what I'd say about you, though. Whoa! Well, I'd say a woman of little talent and little charm. I'd just go with little there. Well, I don't want to lie. I, you want me to lie? I don't want to I talk to you anymore. That's what I want. Okay. Freaking cheesing me off right now, and I don't <laughs> like it. Hang in there. <laughs> don't. No. Okay. All right. Whatever. Let's put that aside. We'll discuss this later. Frykowski told others he was an aspiring writer, but no one could recall reading anything that he'd ever written. Polanski had given him money uh, often to fund projects, but he never followed through. Friends of Frykowski said that Abigail had introduced him to drugs to keep him. Abigail's friends said the opposite, that Frykowski got Abigail hooked onto drugs to keep her under his control. Police reports said that he didn't have a job and had no income. He supported himself off of Abigail's money and used cocaine, mescaline, LSD, marijuana, and hashish regularly. What's mescaline? No idea. I'll give her a goog. Yeah, go ahead and go ahead and ask Jeeves. Well, it's fast, so hang Let's on. Let's cha cha. Mescaline, three, four, five, trimethoxylphenethylamine, <laughs> is a naturally occurring psychedelic protoalkaloid of the substituted phenethylamine class, um, comparable to LSD. That is the simplest terms that I could have asked for, and I really understood everything that you just said. Oh, peyote. Other names. Oh peyote. my God. Why couldn't okay. they have just said yeah, just see like peyote. peyote? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that felt uh, that felt rude. I think Google's still laughing about that. They're like, let's, <laughs> let's get this dumb bitch to read this. Pronounce it again. Pronounce it again. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but uh, enough of that. Um, yeah. Frykowski was shot twice, struck over the head 13 times with a blunt object, and he was stabbed 51 times. What is the deal? Like... It's awful. I don't know, but he fought hard. Yeah. Stephen Earl Parent had graduated from Arroyo High School in June of the same year. He worked mm. full-time. I know. He's so young. So young. I know. Jeez. He worked full-time as a delivery boy and part-time as a salesman for a stereo company. Hard-working man. man. I know. 18 years old. He Jeez. loved folk music and playing guitar, but his passion fell with electronics. The parent family's priest said that if you ever wanted to know anything about electronics, Stephen was the guy to ask. He was saving up money to attend junior college in the fall. Stephen had one defensive wound from a knife and had been shot four times. There was no evidence that the motive for the murders had been robbery. Sharon still had all of her jewelry on. Sebring was wearing his Cartier wristwatch. But Garrison was still in police custody and had requested a polygraph test. He ultimately passed, and police found no indication that he was lying. But he continued to ask one very important question, which police couldn't answer. He said, quote, I'm just confused. For one thing, how come I wasn't murdered? I mean, right? Mm-hmm. They must have just... Assumed that house was empty or something. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so now let's talk about a different murder. A couple different murders, actually. During the continued investigation of what was being referred to as the Tate murders, two homicide detectives from L.A. County Sheriff's Office came to LAPD Sergeant Buckles, who was one of the detectives assigned to the case with information they thought he might find pretty pertinent. They told Buckles that on July 31st, they'd responded to a homicide in Malibu. So the victim was a 34-year-old music teacher named Gary Hinman. He, like the Tate victims, had been stabbed to death. But what the detectives found strange was that in Hinman's apartment, there had been two words written on the wall of his living room in his blood. 
Political piggy. What does it even mean? I know. They arrested a suspect for the murder named Robert, who went by Bobby Beausoleil. He'd been found driving Hinman's car and had blood on his clothing, along with a knife in the tire well. They said that Beausoleil had been living on the Spawn Ranch with other, quote, hippies. They said that the group was strange and had a leader named Charlie, who had convinced the others that he was Jesus. The LAPD said, get the fuck out of here with that. It's totally not connected. The motive behind the Tate murders was obviously drugs. <laughs> they were like, we don't need your help, okay? So yeah. take it elsewhere. And they were like, I'm sorry, you, uh, yeah, okay. But you probably, I get that you didn't hear this part. Um, they wrote the word political piggy or the words political piggy in blood. That's unusual, okay? And you have the word pig written in blood. Mm-hmm. Okay, and that's also very unusual and and same. Yeah, same. and they were like, um, you don't know that, first of all. And also, you're not my real mom and you never will be, so you can't tell me how to investigate this case. So, uh, bye-bye. Exactly. That's exactly Don't what let the door hit you where the good Lord split you. Yep, exactly. And so they were like, I mean, well, I mean, fuck. Yeah, well, we tried. I don't know. We've got another murder, though. Yeah, we sure Around do. 1 a.m. on Sunday, August 10th, just one day after the Tate murders, Lino and Rosemary LaBianca dropped off their daughter at her apartment after they returned from vacationing in Lake Isabella. Before heading home, the couple stopped at a corner newsstand near their home, uh, and they were regulars at this newsstand, and they stopped for a few minutes to chat with the owner, and he said that they spoke about the Tate murders and how scary it was. He said that they finally drove off sometime between 1 and 2 a.m., but more likely closer to 2. What newsstand is open that long? I don't know. We live in BFE, basically, so... That's true. I'm guessing things are a little different in L.A., you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> it was reported that Rosemary was especially upset by the Tate murders. A few weeks prior, she had told a friend, someone is coming in our house while we're away. Things have been gone through, and the dogs are outside when they should be inside. Creepy. That's fucking terrifying. Yeah. Later that night, Frank Struthers, the LaBianca's 15-year-old son, was dropped off after the Lake Isabella vacation. As he walked up the driveway, he saw that the family's speedboat was still attached to the car, which was strange because the stepfather didn't like to leave the boat out overnight. He knocked on the back door several times, but there was no answer. He walked to the nearest payphone and tried calling the house. No answer. He tried calling his sister, Suzanne's work, but she wasn't there. Her boss offered to call her apartment and tell her to call Frank back on the payphone, which she did just after 9 p.m. Suzanne told her brother that she hadn't heard from them since they dropped her off early that morning. She called her boyfriend, Joe, and the couple went to pick up Frank. The three found a spare set of keys that Rosemary left in her vehicle and entered the house through the back door. Joe told Suzanne to stay in the kitchen. The boys walked into the living room and saw Lino lying on his back on the floor there was a pillow over his head and a cord around his neck. Hmm. And they could see that something was protruding from his stomach. And it was obvious that he was dead. Joe didn't want to disturb any evidence or for Suzanne to see Lino, so they left the home and asked a neighbor to call 911. The two, um, I'm sorry, just two officers responded in under 10 minutes. Not long after, an ambulance arrived and pronounced Lino LaBianca dead. The cord around his neck was wrapped very tightly and attached to a large lamp. His hands were bound behind his back, and the object that was protruding from his stomach was a bi-tined carving fork. That's just scary. I don't know. I don't know why that feels scarier to me than a knife. Like, it because, yeah, I agree, creepy. though. It, yeah, yeah, it's eerie. And yeah. In his stomach, someone had carved the word war. Later, the pillowcase was removed from his head, and it was discovered that there was a knife lodged in his neck. In the master bedroom, police discovered the body of Rosemary LaBianca face down on the floor covered in blood. She had a pillowcase over her head and a lamp cord around her neck. She had been stabbed 41 times and was also pronounced dead on scene. There were three phrases printed throughout the LaBianca's house written in blood. In the living room was, quote, death to pigs. On the opposite wall was, quote, rise. And on the refrigerator door was a phrase that had been mis misspelled, and it read, it was supposed to read Helter Skelter, but it was spelled H-E-A-L-T-E-R. Kielter Skelter. Yeah. yeah uh, 
Can you not be bothered to fucking spell it correctly? I mean, this was Charlie's favorite song of all times. Exactly. Written specifically for him. You think he... Okay, all right, fine. Yeah, like, come on. Similarly to the Tate murders, there was no evidence that the attack had been a robbery gone wrong. The LaBiancas were wealthy, as Lena was the president of a chain of L.A. supermarkets. And there were valuables still in the home. There was no evidence of a struggle or forced entry. Police noted there were similarities, but didn't believe the Tate murders and the LaBianca murders were connected for multiple reasons, okay? (laughs) First, there was no link between the victims. They didn't know each other, so obviously not connected. Move on. (laughs) Uh, The fairly large distance between the two homes, because there are uh, automobiles are not invented at this time. And the absence of drugs at the LaBianca's house when there were drugs found at the Tate home, which to me, again, because you got the writing in the blood. So that would say, you know what? Maybe drugs aren't the motive for both of these murders. But instead, they said no drugs here. Definitely not connected because most certainly drugs in the Tate murder. That's the only way. That is just fine police work there. No, I I see no consistencies between the two. (laughs) Right. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. On the afternoon of September 1st in the Sherman Oaks neighborhood of L.A., 10-year-old Stephen Weiss was in his backyard when he found a gun. Goodness. Yeah. In Bugliosi's book, Helter Skelter, he described how Stephen handled the gun. Quote, Stephen had watched Dragnet on TV. He knew how a gun should be handled, picking it up very carefully by the tip of the barrel so as not to eradicate prints. Stephen took the gun back to his house and showed his father. Yeah. I am so proud of him. He was 10. Yeah. That's what, yep. I know we try to tell the boys, like, if you see something like that, you don't touch it. You tell a grown-up. Yes. I mean, that's great. And he, uh, how he didn't have, like, tweezers or tongs or, like, a little plastic baggie or something. I mean, this this kid was prepared. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. Good for him, man. Mr. Weiss called LAPD and gave them the revolver his son had found with a missing right-hand grip. A few days later, LAPD sent out confidential flyers to surrounding police departments describing the gun that they were looking for from the Tate murders. Unfortunately, one was not mailed to the LAPD Valley Services Division, of which they had received the gun from Stephen Weiss. Okay, I'm sorry. You can't mail it to everybody. Do you know how much mail is lost, Torella? Damn. Freaking post post office. office. I know. LAPD officers assigned to the LaBianca murders had failed to check if the LA's share or LA Sheriff's Department had any similar murders in their jurisdiction. In October, they finally did and found out about the Hinman murder where, quote, political piggy had been written in blood on the wall. Yeah, but that's not connected. Because of drugs, right? Exactly. Lack thereof. Yes, of course. Yeah. The officers from the sheriff's office said that they'd recently raided Barker Ranch, which was located near Death Valley. And this was where the uh, Manson and the family had recently located to, relocated to, excuse me. They'd arrested 24 members of the family on multiple different charges. They spoke to the girlfriend of Bobby Beausoleil, the suspect in the Hinman murder. She told officers that she'd heard that Manson had sent Beausoleil and a woman named Susan Atkins, Atkins to get money from Hinman. 
When they couldn't, they killed him. Police questioned Susan Atkins, who was in custody from the Barker raid, and she said that Beausoleil had indeed killed Hinman, and she'd been there, but she said nothing to implicate Manson in the murder. Because let's save Charles Manson at all costs, right? Mm -hmm, Exactly. Because he takes such good care of you. Right. Susan was arrested on suspicion of murder and um, moved to the Sybil Brand Institute, a prison in L.A. It was there that she met Ronnie Howard and Virginia Graham. Let's talk more about Susan, though. So Susan loved to talk, and she immediately told Virginia all about Manson, that, quote, he was their father, their leader, their love. Mm -hmm. She also told him that Manson was Jesus Christ. Wait, told her. Oh, yep, her. You're right. She also told her that Manson was Jesus Christ. Bugliosi wrote about Virginia's first tharts. Tharts! (laughs) First tharts! First Thoughts. <laughs> first thoughts. Oh my goodness. Regarding, see what happened there. First thoughts regarding, and I just put thoughts and regarding, just just first right on together. Thoughts, there for yeah. th- first thoughts. First <laughs> thoughts regarding Susan. She said, "Quote: Susan, Virginia decided was nuts." In November, Susan came to Virginia and told her that she wasn't worried about the police. That there was a murder case going on right now, and they had no clue what actually happened. <sighs> And she's like, get this, Virginia. Yeah, listen to this. I totally killed somebody else and they don't even know that it's connected. Right. And I know for a fact that you're never going to tell anybody. Yeah, you're my best friend. You would never tell. Right. I just met you yesterday, but we're like best friends. Yeah. Were they drunk in the bathroom? Like, (laughs) that doesn't happen. So yes, she said it was about the Tate murders and Susan asked Virginia if she knew who did it. Virginia was like, uh, no. And Susan said, well, you're looking at her. (laughs) And she told Virginia details about the murders that were, there were four of them, three men and a, three men, three women and a man. I want to say three men and a baby, three women and a man from the family that had committed the murders. And she described how they found each victim, how each one reacted to their presence. Then she described how they murdered each one of them. And in regards to Sharon, she told Virginia that it was obvious that she was pregnant, but that she didn't care. And she said that, like we said before, Sharon begged Susan to spare her and that she wanted to have the baby. And Susan said that her response was, quote, look, bitch, I don't care about you. I don't care if you're going to have a baby. You better be ready. You're going to die. And I don't feel anything about it. That is just terrifying. Uh Uh-huh. When Susan tried to explain the concept of helter-skelter to Virginia, she, you know, obviously didn't understand because she's got some brain cells in her fucking head. Mm -hmm. So... Susan said, quote, you have to have a real love in your heart to do this for people. I do feel like what she's doing is the, I mean, polar opposite of having love in your heart, but okay. Well, clearly you don't have real love in your heart because you don't understand it, but exactly. Susan continued to answer any and all questions Virginia had. And when Virginia was moved to a different facility, she told fellow inmate Ronnie Howard about what Susan had said. Susan was quick to repeat her confession for Ronnie, and both Ronnie and Virginia, after debating whether Susan's stories were true, finally decided to tell someone, and she ultimately testified before a grand jury telling them about the Tate murders. Mm. Detectives felt confident that the family was behind the Hinman, Tate, and LaBianca murders. Now. Before they didn't, but now they do. Right. With the confessions from Susan Adkins and the many people who had been involved with or dealt with the Manson family, um... Nope. Who had been involved with or dealt with Manson and the family reporting things that had been said connecting them to the murders. In December of 1969, several members of the family were indicted. Manson, Atkins, Charles, who went by Tex Watson, Patricia Krenwinkel, and Linda Kasabian were charged with conspiracy and murder for the Tate murders. They also indicted the group in the LaBianca murders, adding the family member Leslie Van Houten to this list. I wonder if... Charles Manson made Tex go by Tex because he's like, there could only be one Charles in this group. Oh, I bet so. It's like, um, oh, what was that show? And it was so funny. Um, Last Man on Earth. <gasps> and when there were two... Um, what was his name? What oh was my his God, name? what was his name? What was his name? But they, they made him go by... Was it both Phil? Phil? Phil, yes. And they made him go by Gandy. Uh, Dandy. 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 <laughs> Tandy. Tandy. I'm like, it's something like that. I can't remember what it is. Tandy. Yes. Yeah. That's, um, 
Remember, that's exactly what happened to Wright. Oh, yes. Um, but he's like, and I'm going to name all of my children Charles. Oh my gosh, yeah. I have. It doesn't have to be my children. To you. Charles, this is Charles. Uh, that one's Charles. This one over here is Charles, and the little one is Charles. It's like on Finding Nemo, where it's like, this half is, um, I can't even think of their names now, Coral, <laughs> and, um, and this half is whatever. And then he's like, okay, and we can name one Nemo, fine. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> when Van Houten was questioned, she said that she'd heard four people had gone to the Tate home on the night of the murders, but she wasn't one of them. She also said that Manson was not involved. She implied that three girls had gone, but one of them hadn't murdered anyone. One male had been with them. Meanwhile, Bugliosi, who had been assigned as the prosecutor for the case against Manson, Krenwinkel, Atkins, and Van Houten, who were all being tried together, was elated that they finally had their first piece of physical evidence tying the group to the Tate house. Tex had been fingerprinted, and his print matched one that was found on the front door of the home. He was in custody in his hometown of McKinney, Texas, though, though, McKinney police were fighting to have him not extradited to California. Tex was well-known in his hometown. He'd been an honor student in the high school and a very good athlete. Cool. He even, hang on, I'm not finished. Oh. He even, when he graduated high school, went to North Texas State University, and he was in a fraternity. So he's got to be an upstanding citizen, no? He's a nice exactly. white kid. Yeah. So you see why they didn't want him to be extradited. He probably didn't do it. He was in a fraternity, for God's sake. I know. They just, yeah, they were just like, he couldn't have done it. But because of his delay in extradition, Tex ended up being tried separately from the other family members. In June of 1970, the trial of Manson, Krenwinkel, Atkins, and Van Houten began. The trial itself was an absolute circus. All of the defendants fired their attorneys and asked for new ones multiple times. There were countless outbursts from all four defendants, and they were all removed from the courtroom many times. None of the defendants ever showed any remorse whatsoever. Linda Kasabian agreed to testify about her involvement in the murders and what she knew. Despite not having physically hurt anyone herself, Kasabian was incredibly remorseful about her minor involvement in the murders and had clearly broken the emotional tie she once had to Manson. This was especially critical to the prosecution as Atkins had recanted her entire grand jury testimony. Despite Manson's threats toward her in court, Kasabian testified for 18 days. Good God. That's overwhelming, exhausting. Mm, like, that's crazy. Especially having to be, just being in a room with Manson for 18 days probably yeah. got awful. She was given immunity in exchange for her testimony. In January of 1971, after a week of deliberation, the jury found the four defendants guilty on all charges of murder and conspiracy of the Tate and LaBianca murders. Shortly after, they were all sentenced to the death penalty. In 1972, their sentences were commuted to life in prison when California abolished the death penalty. Tex Watson was tried by himself in October of 1971, and he was also found guilty on seven charges of murder. And his death penalty sentence was also commuted to life in prison. No, he can't go to any frat mixers now. Yeah, I mean, wrongful conviction, you know? <laughs> Whatever. Tex Watson. So though the exact events of the nights of the murders are only known by those who were there, through confessions and accounts, this is what is believed to have happened at the Tate house. Before leaving the ranch that night, Manson told the girls, which were Kasabian, Susan, and Patricia, to do whatever Tex told them to do. They left and drove to 10,050 Cielo Drive, where Tex used wire cutters to cut the phone lines. The four were hiding in the bushes on the property when they saw headlights coming down the driveway. Tex told the girls to lay down on the ground, and he walked towards the car, shooting and killing Steve Parent. Stephen Parent, excuse me. The girls joined Tex by the house where he crawled through a dining room window, then opened the front door for the girls. Kasabian stayed outside while the other three girls entered the home. Rakowski was laying on the couch and awoke to Tex pointing a gun at him. Susan went to check for others in the house. In one bedroom, she saw Abigail, who was reading a book. She smiled at Susan. She likely believed Susan to be one of Tate's friends. Susan walked to the next bedroom where Susan and Sebring were talking, but neither saw her. Susan then, at Texas instruction, tied up Frykowski and then used a knife to force Abigail into the living room. She then did the same thing with Sharon and Sebring. Tex shot Sebring, who fell on the floor. 
Susan went to kill Frykowski, but he had freed himself from his bindings and fought back before running towards the front door. Tex caught him, hitting him over the head, then stabbing him. Tex then stabbed Sebring multiple times. Tex told Susan to kill Sharon, which she ultimately did. Abigail, like Frykowski, escaped to the front yard where Tex caught her and stabbed her until she stopped struggling and they were all dead. Oh my gosh. Could you imagine? <sighs> Linda had watched as the murders happened and begged Susan to stop. Horrified, she ran from the front yard to the car and she said that she thought about running to a neighbor's house to get help, but then remembered her young daughter was still back at the ranch. She was terrified that they would hurt her if she ran. Instead, she waited in the car until the other three were finished. When they returned to the ranch, Manson asked the four if they had any remorse. They all said no, but Linda was lying. She later said that she was scared for her life if she said anything other than what Manson wanted. I mean, valid. Yeah. But like the craziest thing to me about, I mean, I don't know, the whole case is crazy, but Charles Manson's vendetta was against Terry Melcher. Mm-hmm. And he had just moved out of this house and Sharon and Roman had just moved into it. Yeah. That's the only reason they were killed. Right. He was trying to get revenge against Terry Melcher for not giving him a, a record, record deal. deal. Which Roman Polanski and Sharon Tate could not have given him. Not exactly. Ever. None of the and, people well, that were there could have given him one. He didn't go there, so he couldn't have known none of these people right. are the people I want you to kill. Right. <laughs> right. It's seriously like just wrong place, wrong time because he just didn't realize they'd moved out of that house. But the thing is, I watched the Very Scary People on this on the HLN network with uh, Donnie Wahlberg, which, you know, Mm -hmm. hey, Donnie. But there was a clip from, I think it was like the 90s or the 80s. I cannot remember exactly when, 93 maybe, when Charles Manson, he was interviewed in prison and he said, maybe I should have killed more people. Maybe that would have made me happier. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. Seriously? Charles Manson died in prison of natural causes in November of 2017. He continued to maintain his innocence up until his death. What the fuck ever. Susan Atkins died in September of 2009 of brain cancer while in prison. She petitioned for compassionate release, but was denied. Leslie Van Houten, Patricia Krenwinkel, and Tex Watson remain imprisoned. I mean. And that's it. I read an article, too, that I guess once he realized that they didn't actually kill the people they wanted to, that they tracked Candace and Terry yeah, down at another house, but for whatever reason, didn't end up killing them. Wow. And I heard that he, the people, there were more people on his list of people to kill, like Frank Sinatra, Mm -hmm. not Tom Jones. Yep, Tom Jones. Yeah, well, we talked about Steve McQueen. Like, he, I mean, mm-hmm. he he wanted to kill a lot of other people. Yeah. And then, he, you know, and the people ask him, like, well, I mean, but you, you didn't tell them to do this. He's like, what they do is their business. What you do is your own. I don't tell you what to do. I don't tell anybody what to do. Tarla, I, I'm telling you. You did. You are either great <laughs> at voices or, I don't know, you brought me right there and I felt like I was talking to Charles Manson. And I'm frightened. I'm scared about that. Yeah. I'm very scared about that. Well, you're too good at it. I never realized, it's kind of like in the birdcage when he um, tells Albert to walk like um, Wayne, John Wayne, and he does it. And he's like, no, what? No good. And he's like, no, I just never realized walk that way. But that's (laughs) you with that voice. I never realized that you sound exactly like Charles Manson and it's scary. Okay. I feel like that's the meanest thing you've ever said to me, actually. Now that we're now that we're got talking you, about it, got you back for calling me <laughs> little talent and little charisma. <laughs> oh man, you got All me. Right. Yeah. Well, guys, well, that's it. That's it, guys. I mean, whoa, we wow, wow. Yeah, we did it. You need a, a palate cleanser after this one for sure. But yeah, uh, thank you guys so much for listening. We love you so much, and we'll catch you on the next episode. Bye, bye. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this case. Connect with us on Instagram or Facebook to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening and we will meet you back here next week. Bye. The theme song for the show is created and composed by Stephen Toby. You can find more of Stephen's work on SoundCloud. Our logo was created by Sloane Williams of Sophisticated Crayon. You can find more of her work on Etsy. Visit us at killerqueenspodcast.com for merch and other info about the show.
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 